You're about to join Jerry Parker, Marit Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me. Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Moritz, where we dived into a few different topics like the stealth inflation that we are seeing and what that may mean for your investments. Jerry, great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Things are great. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. There's a lot going on, a lot of good market, a lot of good trends continuing. So it's uh, try not to look at the charts too much and look at the quotes too much. I don't want to jinx myself. <laughs> yes, and we've got a pretty full program today. We've got lots of uh, topics, uh, not least thanks to you. And uh, so it'll be uh, it'll be fun. In terms of kind of a market wrap for the week, I would say um, we saw another round of selling pressure in the 10-year and the 30-year treasuries, now reaching yields of 1.34 and 2.13 respectively. And that's pretty close to a one-year high. And they're up about let me see here. So about 50 basis points higher on the 10-year from last summer and almost a percent higher really now in the 30-year. Of course, ironically, we saw at the same time low yields, record low yields in the uh, high-yield market this week. Double B-rated companies reach a record low of 2.98%. So that's quite an interesting divergence to say the least. We also saw records in the price of Bitcoin that reached 55,000, equaling a trillion dollar market value now, which suggests to me that some people believe inflation is coming sooner rather than later. Our friend Dr. Copper hit a fresh nine-year high and the British pound reached 1.4 against the US dollar for the first time since 2018, despite many experts predicting about how Brexit would send the pound into a freefall. A good example of how difficult it is to predict, especially the future. And concerning the developments in the US bond markets and the relentless sell-off that we have seen lately, it is interesting to see what the Fed is going to do on their next meeting in March. Will they choose to introduce some kind of yield curve control to prevent long-term rates getting even higher and then try to inflate away all their debt? Or will they choose to let the markets find their own level and where long-term interest rates should go, kind of like the old days where we had free markets. Only time will tell, but it will be interesting to follow indeed. Now, Jerry, let's talk a little bit about what stood out to you in the last month or so since you were on the show, market moves, uh, performance, whatever you feel like bringing up. Oh, well, just a continuation of a lot of good trends, especially uh, Bitcoin. Moritz and I trade the Bitcoin futures and it keeps going up. I checked it a few minutes ago and it's up again this weekend. So I don't know what's going on there and it's kind of crazy, but uh, I guess I'm okay with not knowing what's going on in soybeans either, honestly. So those trends happened, started a long time ago and they just keep doing really well. I haven't added to too many positions recently. I did add some 
meats, the cattle, and the hogs recently, and that's about it. Not a lot of trading, just a lot of watching. And uh, I was telling someone recently that the more the some of these grains go up, you know, the more nervous we all get. I think because it's just too good to be true, and we're waiting for something bad to happen. And uh, but it's really been a, a fun period for me ever since uh, the beginning of November. You know, I can't remember who said it, but it's one of these investment gurus, and they. Uh, It's certainly been quoted many times from saying that the money is not being made from trading, they're being made from sitting. And that's exactly what trend followers are doing right now to a large extent. We're sitting on these positions, we're not doing a lot of trading, we're just, as you say, watching with interest. So uh, I think that just confirms that. On our side, you know, even if rising yields did have a small negative impact on our portfolios at done, especially in the long Australian and shorter dated US fixed income positions, We also had short positions in longer dated bonds that eased that pain. And then we had equities and currencies that were modestly positive. And then the commodities, maybe with the exception of meats, was really uh, well for us, as well as uh, volatility this week. Solid week. And that really drove this week's positive performance. Also, as mentioned in our volatility strategy, we continue to see profits being made from the steepening term structure. So another strong week and so far a very strong month in that space. For my own model trend following portfolio where I can go into a little bit more details and be a bit more granular, it was a good week up 4% for the week, leaving it up 9.63% for the month, up 7.88% for the year. Performance was mainly coming from, or this month, it's mainly coming from the group two models. So these are the long only type discretionary models as I described them. But we also have a group uh, group one, a uh, kind of classical trend, doing really well, up almost 5%. And then the fast-reacting models are slightly down this month, being whipped around a little bit. In terms of sector attributions, base metals doing the best, followed by energies and FX. And the worst sector this month is bonds, and that's really the only losing sector. And if we drill down to single markets, copper, Nikkei, Platinum were the top three markets so far this month. And at the bottom, we find the DAX and the German Bund, which are really two markets that also trade in these fast-reacting Group 3 models. So that's probably where, where that comes from. And in terms of trading, this week, the system added a bit of long exposure in LED and ARBOP. It went long aluminium, and it went short the US 10-year notes. And in order to give you an idea in terms of the risk of the portfolio, the risk to stop, uh, which I measure every day, right now it would lose 13.87% if it was stopped out of all positions in a single day. And that's up from 12.47% last week. And then finally, I saw about six or seven trades for the whole week in the portfolio. So not a lot of activity either there. I'd like to mention that I kind of dropped the ball. I did want to mention the short interest rates. So I think that CTAs and trend followers are building up these short rates. They've been, they broke out to new lows, most of the tens and longer a few weeks ago. So that's kind of a big change. We'll see how well we do on that. We've talked about papers that have been written by CTAs and others talking about we probably won't make the kind of money we made on the uptrends, but the volatility is pretty low here. 
in some of these bonds and we have on we'll probably have on pretty decent sized short positions so that's a big huge change and then energy finally the last commodity sector really to to show for me to get long it's kind of been a very slow uptrend very low volatility uh so we'll see what happens there as well so some major changes in uh what feels like a sea change in inflation and the fed and something different is happening but uh, they could all fail who knows they can indeed of course what's been really interesting to me is and i guess a lot of people follow this maybe people believe in it or, or not i personally believe that markets to some extent have cycles and certainly the interest rate cycle has been shown to last about 40 years and of course we know that interest rates peaked in the u.s in 1981 at 40 years you get 2021 Although the low was probably in 2020, when we had that debacle in March last year, we did see the lowest level on record in, in in yields. But yields don't tend to just change direction and then shoot up the other way. Uh, they, they, they can spend a bit of time moving around the lows, which we've seen, by the way, uh, because we did have some low readings in U.S. Uh, long-term yields back in 2016, I thought, I, I think it was. So anyways, it's been moving around at these very low levels and it wouldn't surprise me if we have seen the low in, in yields for this cycle. And then, as as you say, Jerry, then it's going to be interesting to see how that's going to impact portfolios. But I want to stay on that topic, actually, since you brought it up, because although we have some questions later from Peter and, and Mohit that we're going to talk about, you, I think it was, shared this article, maybe it was Moritz who shared an article called from the Financial Times, Asset Managers Rush to Shore Up Portfolios Against Inflation, not least because we've been flagging the risk of inflation for a while. On this podcast, I think that's an interesting thing, and, and maybe Moritz will also dive into this when he's on next. But in the article, it talks about Inflation are now rising following massive increases of government spending and the torrent of liquidity unleashed by central banks in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Asset managers are now facing a barrage of questions from clients over the risks of inflation and are rushing to shore up portfolios from inflationary risk, fearing that a resurgence threatens to spoil the party again for investors. I really think that's, and you know, I do think it's an interesting topic not least because we know that investors, to a large extent, are very much exposed to the kind of the 60-40 type portfolio. And I think the big question is, what are they going to do with the 40? And uh, I just wanted to hear from you whether these are conversations that you're getting involved in or hearing anything that's that's interesting. Because you and I are old enough to remember what inflation is a lot of people probably don't even remember what it is so maybe you also have a few thoughts on that and and how you would think about maybe the broader context of portfolio construction not necessarily just pure trend following because we don't have much opinion we're just going to follow the rules but maybe you have some uh, experiences from back when we had inflation the last time oh yeah i mean i was in high school when inflation was double digits and rates were double digits what I found interesting about this article was that um, the part about uh, they're rushing to shore up their portfolios. Rushing, I mean, some of these break commodity breakouts happened a year ago. I checked, uh, I think it was copper. It was to the day almost. So 
what's been going on? What do you mean shoring up? You should have been long copper and soybeans for a long time. And I think that it's so important now, of course, to get these, to pay attention to this and get your portfolio shored up with the right positions. And to, if you're going to stay long stocks, which we are, you know, they're in an uptrend. So let's do something else as well, like the commodities that look really good. And so this is just what trend following offers is the timing aspect of it and the diversification. There's so many different commodities. Okay, so we did copper a year ago. We went long energy recently. So it's not a commodity play per se, which sounds very concentrated and risky. And uh, it's been building as the markets have shown themselves to be strong or weak. And I think that's just a huge edge for portfolio like trend following the CTA diversified trend following that uh, this is how it all works and you don't wake up one day and say hey there's some trends out there that have been going on for a year let's shore up our portfolio this is like nonsense for us so we we have it all squared away I've read some other things that it's the same old theory that uh, every asset class that fits in with this traditional 60 40 or whatever it's going to be viewed in terms of how has it performed as a buy and hold. And some of these markets don't perform well as a buy and hold. Does copper? I doubt it. I'm not sure. We know stocks do. We know that bonds are worthy because they have. But uh, trend following allows you to get them in the portfolio. They instantaneously, miraculously become worthy because you've wrapped them in trend following. So, it's a mess if you don't have uh, this strategy with material positions in the, the four major sectors. You wake up one day and say, I got to shore things up. And uh, of course, it works well if the status quo remains and stocks, you're happy with the concentrated position in stocks, they keep going up. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack, I think, when it comes to fixed income and potentially this end of an era in terms of falling uh, interest rates. Because it will have massive implications for many portfolios, both on the private uh, individuals, but certainly also for institutional portfolios, pension funds, et cetera, et cetera. And we know how they can't afford losing money in some of these positions to live up to their whatever 7% target they have. There's a couple of things for me. One is, of course, that, I mean, if you look at the 30-year U.S. bond, I mean, it's down almost 30 big figures now since the high in March of last year. I mean, that's pretty significant. And as you say, you know, it's interesting that, that, that we now start to feel the pain. We now start to see the pain point maybe in terms of how much or how little actually yields have to rise before this becomes a, a big topic uh, among investors. And frankly, we've only moved up by 1%. So there's a hell of a long way to go if we're just going back to, let's call it normal rates. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is, and I've mentioned this before, and that is the inconvenient truth is that bonds and stocks, unfortunately, are positively correlated most of the time. Now, they haven't been for the last 20 years. They've probably been negatively correlated most of the time. So they've been the perfect partners in a portfolio. But if we are going to see this positive correlation to come back and at the same time continuation of higher bond yields, that means that stocks could be negatively influenced and that's going to cause an even larger problem for people. But I want to take it even further 
and bring in the trend following part a little bit uh, here, Jerry, and that is because you tweeted a uh, an article from Bloomberg this week, also talking about CTAs and bonds and and what influence we may have, uh, at least according to Nomura, who often have these very strong opinions about our industry and and what we're doing. So, what what was your takeaway? I don't have the article in front of me, but but what was your takeaway from those comments? Well. I tweeted the article, I quoted, trend following CTAs have been snapping up copper as prices surge. They've been buying far more than what pure fundamentals might suggest, according to Quants at Nomura. And my comment was, CTAs are still buying. The market's been, copper's been straight up since the big breakout in February 2020. So that's when I went out and tr- found that uh, the last, you know, the big breakout so pure fundamentals were buying more than pure fundamentals might suggest that's so silly right because we don't believe in the fundamentals we don't we know the fundamentals went out but we we don't uh, we'd prefer the breakouts and the trend in order to try to profit from uh, these markets and understand we may not be able to understand all of the fundamentals where are the fundamentals in the stocks where are the fundamentals in bitcoin for god's sake so uh, everyone is frustrated by these fundamentals they don't line up with value or what I perceive to be value. So then they throw out there that we're buying up copper. Are we buying copper? I don't know. Maybe the vol targeting people buy it, sell it, buy it, sell it a couple of times. But long-term trend following sort of held it. Didn't even need to be long-term trend following. Maybe the 40 in, 20 out friends are doing well in copper as well. I don't really understand that. They're in their preoccupation with uh, understanding what CTAs are doing. You know, a phone call would work really well versus the quant analyst at some of these firms who are know exactly what we're up to. Yeah, and I think it, what makes me interested in sometimes talking about these articles is not really because I think they bring a lot of value to the discussion, but I do think they bring a lot of confusion to the discussion, as you rightly pointed out. First of all, back in March or whenever it was, I don't have a chart in front of me right here, but when copper started to break out to the upside, I don't think any fundamentals really were suggesting we're going to have a super strong economy after the pandemic had just blown out. And then secondly, as you rightly say, I mean, if copper had a breakout in March, April, May, whatever it was last year, that's when we bought it. We're not buying it in February of 2021, that's for sure. So it's kind of crazy and it's kind of uh, weird that there's this obsession sometimes with what we're up to. Still, we're a very small part of the overall market. And I also think from that article, which I think I glanced through it, which is why I wanted to bring it up today, I think they also said something about how we were pushing bond prices down and you know all of that stuff. And, and it's just not really... The case, I think. Anyways, let's jump to some of these very interesting topics that you brought up. And I'm going to let you kind of take over a little bit because some of these were addressed to you, but they're super exciting and interesting. And the first one I wanted to bring up was something that you were talking to Eric Crittenden about our friend over at Standpoint. Yeah, he was just uh, talking about building systems and um, getting away from his original idea of what he called building a dream CTA with bells and whistles and uh, with all the paying attention to risk balancing, correlations, covariances, co-integration, and just making it as pretty much as complex and as perfect as possible. Probably 
doing what a lot of people do, which is solve for the sharp, which I think is not a good idea when it comes to um, trend following and making money and, and using a systematic approach that you hope is going to uh, work in the future. And he said he built this elegant work of art that had a very pretty, a pretty nice long back test. But then he sort of realized that there were so many moving parts and points of failure that uh, he said, quote, the skeptic in me whispered that this elegant Frankenstein looked strong, but was really brittle and would shatter on unseen data. So I thought that was pretty darn good. And I asked him if I could tweet it and quote it. And he said, oh, sure. He's a very good writer. And he, I guess I prompted him with some question about correlations. And um, he went on to say that when he started stripping away these features, quote unquote features, one at a time, a curious thing happened. Each step, I love this uh, sentence here. I think this is, uh, I'm going to pin this as one of my uh, favorite tweets. He says, each step towards system sobriety barely impacted the returns. So he just goes on to say that he was taking away uh, some of the reasons that the system was less robust, the more rules and the more parameters, and it really didn't impact the overall performance too much, but the volatility did go up a little. The, the max drawdown went up. The volatility went from 10 to 12, according to him. So I think that is usually the trade-off. Are we going to handle a little bit more risk by allowing a little bit more volatility in the open trade equity? Are we going to shut that down? We're going to shut it down with rules take profits, volatility targeting, because clients don't like it. Yeah. And yeah. we have these degrees, and we have this knowledge, and that's what we do because we love this backtest. We fall in love with being able to replicate what would have happened in the past with our rules, and then we live in this world, oh my gosh, that is so crazy and different every day beyond our wildest imaginations. And so that's why I think one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. I think you can do more, and I do a little bit more, but uh, you just, I don't think the trade-off is all, all the time worth it uh, for precision. We don't need to be precise. We just need to buy these trends, buy these breakouts, and hang on. Yeah, and you and I, of course, have had these conversations uh, both on the podcast and, and, and off the podcast, and... I guess you could say that you've earned the right not to have to worry too much about these things. But it is, for many people, of course, it is this trade-off where you say, am I going to go for the best performance knowing full well that that's going to probably yield me the fewest clients? And and that is tricky. I mean, there is a right answer for both types of, of firms that you want to build. And then you see where the chips fall. But I do think that that's been the struggle. and But it's very clear, I mean, after last year, we saw how simple type, pure trend really did well and how probably over the last 20 years at least where there's a def decent sample of, of, of trend followers still in business that some of these pure trend managers probably have done the best in terms of absolute returns but they're also the smallest of the group, so to speak, in terms of AUM. So it's a continued challenge. But I, I do like the way Eric describes it and, and how you talk about it as well. And I do think that it takes courage, I think, as well, not to go for precision, right? It takes courage to just believe in the 
in good enough is good enough. So I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, I'd like to disagree just a little bit. If you're talking about adding a robust systematic approach to your trend following, something that's different than trends, but it still doesn't have too many rules and it's not too overly optimized, then I think that's worth doing. You know, there's no problem there. And the firms that have done that, some of those are very large. And like you said, they have more AUM. But trying to create a, an, uh, improve the trend following in a less than robust way with more rules and more variables and more optimization, it may buy you some time. So you'll gather more AUM than a pure trend follower with less rules and more robustness, but it's a, it's, you're a loser in the end anyway. So it really doesn't matter if, if you're not doing things that are going to last and stand the test of time and do well on what he calls unseen data, then you'll be found out eventually. But I do think there is this seduction that of clients as well who want to continue to hear about adaption. We're adapting. We're continuously improving. Research is at the core of what we do. And I think they like to hear that. And I do think that that buys these firms more time as well. But eventually they too, if they don't have what they need as far as systems that are not overly optimized and can do well on data that they haven't seen yet, they too will be found out and uh, have trouble. Yeah. And on top of that, I completely agree with that, Jerry. And on top of that, I would say that there's definitely been a narrative out there that I've come across in the last few years after we saw February of 2018, which was pretty uh, difficult for trend followers. And also February, March of last year was difficult for some, not for all. But there is definitely this narrative out there uh, that investors want us as firms to react trying to fix these unpleasant periods and that and then going back to them and saying well hang on guys we're not going to make a short-term fix if it hurts our long-term performance and even though we don't make changes to our systems all the time and, and i certainly represent a firm that don't do it very often it is because we strongly believe, and you have to trust on us on this, we strongly believe that, that we can't add anything new that's going to make it better in the long run. Uh, and, and that's a really interesting conversation to have with people because that's not what they want to hear. They want us to have some kind of recipe for fixing things and then everything goes, uh, you know, continues to, to, to go as, as well as it did in the past. That is most for most parts, I think, unlikely uh, that we can do that. Um, and I actually think that this goes to another topic, which is the importance of why a firm like Chesapeake or a firm like Don, why it's important to sometimes look at these firms that has been around for a long time. Because those decisions, you can't backtest. You can't backtest experience. It's impossible, right? And so having the, the, the courage and the will to re refrain from making these impulsive changes to to go for a short-term fix, I think that requires a hell of a lot of not just skill, but, you know, a lot of experience and and uh, and, and and courage, really, from the managers. I know you've done it. For, uh, I know we do it. But I also know a lot of people who makes these changes all the time. And as you say, they come out with all this new research saying, yeah, we've tweaked this, we've tweaked that. And, and that tends to go down better with investors, but I'm not sure they really understand the impact that every time you make a change, there's the chance you're going to get it wrong. Well, there's a, there, yeah, but it's worse than that too, because there is the reality that you're no longer being consistent. 
So if you just flipped a coin every time there was a breakout in the British pound, you, I do it sometimes, sometimes I don't do it. Everybody would tell you that's crazy. Look how inconsistent you are being. If you said, no, I'm going to buy the breakout on the British pound every single time like I'm supposed to, but I'm going to change my commitment to the pound. Sometimes I trade it twice as large as other times, irrespective of the volatility, for instance. I just have a feeling this time about the pound. Everyone would tell you that's crazy. You don't have feelings. You have back-tested this systematic approach. That back-test would tell you that, it, that you're changing your commitment to the pound or bypassing the pound trades is a total failure. Now you're just being inconsistent and you're not going to have good performance. And the same thing with these improvements. I'm not against improvements, but they carry that cost. As soon as you change the parameter, are the old parameters going to start working better? Change is great, but you need to commit to it and say, I'm going to not make these willy-nilly changes back and forth a lot, but I'm going to make a change and then I'm going to be committed to it for the long term. And I think that what they're not seeing is these changes have a huge cost because the market is just saying you're not consistent. You're changing all the time to scratch the current itch. I think it's important. I think it's worthwhile to read this last paragraph that he wrote. Yeah. These engineering types are chasing a seductive illusion. I did it myself for over a decade. It's hard to quit. But experience has taught me to fear model risk more than missing out on continuous improvement. The S&P is a big, dumb, trend-following program that kicks everybody's ass because it doesn't shy away from winners for any reason, correlation or otherwise. Everything else eventually meets its sequence of death and blows up. And so I think that, <laughs> are, do you, what do you fear more, model risk or missing out on continuous improvement. I think that is so important. And then, of course, the heart of trend following. Do not shy away from winners. Don't cut those winners short. Don't come up with correlation reasons, risk reasons, volatility reasons. Hang in there on those winners. It is really tough to do. But if you start solving for sharp and you fall into that engineering type and try to merge what you learned in business school or with your PhD into basic trend following, you're going to get in trouble. In trouble. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, with that topic, I wouldn't say out of the way. I'm sure we're always going to come back to some of these things. But uh, let me jump on to another thing. This is an email that came from Antonio. And I think can send it to both of us. I'm going to actually ask you the question that makes it a little bit instead of you reading your own questions. I think that's kind of uh, funny. So I'm going to read the questions to you from Antonio. And it is very much turtle related. So the first thing he writes is what was Bill and Rich's performance up until the point they started the turtle program? I think it was really good. I think it was great. I don't like these questions from Antonio. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure he's building some case here. And so I don't like uh, that he's building a case. But uh, let's continue. I think the okay. last question, the last paragraph is worth, but I'm not sure what he's up to here. And uh, okay, my performance was great. Rich's performance was great. Trent Falling's performance has been up and down, but it was great before the last decade. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure where he's headed with this. Right. Let's see go. And, and you can be as vague as you want. That's perfectly fine. And also, I think there are some misunderstandings maybe with the next question, for example. What was Chesapeake's performance up until Salem was taken under Jerry's wing? I'm not <laughs> so sure that he was ever under your wing, but let's, no, no, let no. me let you answer this. Uh, yeah. I think he's, I don't know. I guess our performance was good. It was, uh, it's been good like everyone's up until every, I've struggled at different points in time in the past 10 years with uh, the zero interest rate policy and low rates and the Fed, et cetera, or whatever, lack of commodity trends, lack of any trends other than stocks and bonds. So, um, but I don't think uh, my performance or anybody's performance was is due to anyone else uh, trend following. Sure. Okay, we continue. Um and I guess it also shows that we do actually take pretty much all questions that come our way, even if we don't uh, necessarily know how to, to deal with them. But anyways, what has trend-following performance been for the now more than a decade leading up to all these argumentative kids today? I'm not entirely sure where you're going with this, Antonio. <laughs> Who are the kids and what are they arguing oh, wow. about? Oh, yeah. He's talking about this point I made. I've made it more than once, and it's... I don't guess I was very clear with it, but it was sort of like um, I don't see a lot of people agreeing with my strategy of trend following, even the people who don't know anything about it. And so young people coming up today, they don't absorb what I absorbed, how important it is to diversify and use robust rules and few rules, the fewer rules, the better. And so he's saying these argumentative kids of today who disagree with Jerry how has my performance been over the past decade? Who am I to talk? You know, <laughs> my performance hasn't been great. So maybe these argumentative kids are, I should be listening to them. So I'm getting very defensive here. But uh, yeah, it's it struggled. Every, we've all struggled. And I think it's, there's this mysterious thing going on with trend following that we need to defend or based upon a few white papers, Cliff Asness and others, the problem with trend following, diversified trend following not stock trend following, not bond trend following, but CTA diversified trend following, in my opinion, and I think in these papers' opinions is the lack of trends in over half the portfolio, which is uh, commodities. Commodities alone is half my portfolio, and that's why I'm doing so well now, and then currencies haven't done very much either, probably. So I think it's just two ways of looking at it. We make our case that it's the lack of trends and that's not really addressed. It's that, why do you guys, why are you guys so bad? And what's wrong with trend following? And I think that uh, it sounds like an excuse, but trend following in equities, I think has done pretty well and trend following in bonds has done very well. So I don't know if it's a trend following per se, but it's more of like CTA diversified trend following has not been great. So let me address it from another angle, and this is from memory because I I, uh, I don't have the data in front of me. But as many people know, I publish something called the Trend Barometer every day on my website. And when that was developed, we also went back and took a very long-term view, I think all the way back to... 1990, I think, from memory, where we looked at the trend barometer at the end of each month. And we looked at then on a calendar year, how many of these monthly observations were below a certain number, 
because that would suggest that there were very few trends and therefore you wouldn't expect trend followers to do well for that year. And this is from memory. And and I think over that 30-year period, let's just say for argument's sake that there are like 10 down years in the B-top 50 index, I think it is, that we tracked it against. And what's interesting about that is most of those down years have come after 2009, something like 8 out of 10 is after 2009. So to me, and it certainly is confirmed by the trend barometer, and that's reading on trendiness, that there just has been fewer trends in the last 10 years if you measure it objectively. Like Jerry said, could be the commodities that have trended less. I also think that it's because central banks have been successful in quote-unquote managing economies away from recessions, but also away from big booms. So we haven't had these big changes in GDP and stuff like that. It's all been very brownish color all instead of, you know, the extremes. Um, so anyways, I would say that that certainly confirms. And I, I don't think it's unusual you have any strategy that has a decade, five years, whatever it might be, where performance may not be as strong. People who bought equities in year 2000, they didn't make any money until 10 years plus after. So um, yeah, this this is just how it goes. Anyways, back to Antonio's interesting list of questions for you, uh, Jerry. Okay, while turtles who didn't follow the rules were let go, did Rich not want his turtles to think creatively, creatively, sorry, to generate new ideas and build on what he gave them. After years of minting money, why did Rich entertain doing the opposite mean reversion as some of these argumentative kids today suggest? <laughs> we're back to the kids. Yeah, it's making me laugh. It was my idea to, to read this question, to, I mean, this email sure. too, because I mean, I would like to have a sit down and talk these things out. It's just difficult. And I think there's a language barrier. I don't really understand a lot of historically his questions. Uh, and so I definitely, the turtles were encouraged to think creatively and add some flair to what we were taught. I have no idea what Rich, if Rich did the opposite mean reversion. I don't know. I'd have no idea about that. And I would just go back to finish what I was saying earlier, which is I think that it's not a good excuse to sort of say, well, don't blame trend volume because it's been the commodities that without the trends or the currencies or the Fed. No, no, no. I think it's not a it's not a good excuse. It's your choice. Don't trade system. You shouldn't trade systems that have these big drawdowns. That have these big infrequent profits that can go ten years without making money. That need commodities to do well when and then they don't. No, change what you're doing. It's not it's not an excuse. My clients don't listen to my excuses, and they're like, "Hey, you know, you you were you did well once. You don't do well anymore. I'm I'm leaving. I'm taking my money and going." And we're not going to have a discussion about trend following and and me make and them listening to me make excuses as to why it's all due to the commodities, for God's sake. So I'm just trying to explain what's going on, not that it's perfectly reasonable for people to say, you know, this is an argument, your performance is an argument for using more mean reversion. It is. I agree. It's a it's an argument for all, for everything you do. You should look at it and do something slightly different, if not completely different. I agree. It is an argument for that, and so. But you know, I do what I want to do, and um, pointing out what's going, what I see going on inside the systems and uh, inside the black box. I think is what we're talking about. Not that any of this is good or explainable or anything that 
we can do anything about, then all of a sudden we have November and December of last year, which were two of my best months ever. So I don't know, what does that mean for all these questions and for trend following and for Salem? I have no idea. It may stop or it may continue. We may have the golden age of the next 10 years. I think it just sucks. This is this is life and this is the markets and I have no explanation for why it happens the way it does. Yeah. Last question, and I'm. I hope again I read it correctly because I'm not entirely sure I understand all the abbreviations. Let's try. Why did famous trend followers stop trend following in the late '90s? Question mark is ever uh, is ever longer LT. I, I I'm assume that's long term. Effectively buying and holding a basket of global everything, obviously minus long term shorts, but at much longer time frames. Doesn't the fraction of short positions in the portfolio decrease? I'm assuming that ever longer, longer term, and adding more stuff, you're expected to return. Your expected return should essentially be global inflation. Mm. Now, this is what I was intrigued by. These are two really good points. I like these. I think they're connected. I think initially I couldn't think of any famous trend followers, but you know, definitely John Henry was one. I, or what, or whoever. I think what happened is that the trend following community figured out that uh, short-term trend following was not making money any longer. And then when you run the back test on longer term, and that means different things to everybody, uh, it it just worked wonderfully. It worked wonderful while the short term was working too. And then when short term stopped working well, then there was no reason not to ex- extend the look back periods. And I think that. It's expressing some frustration here that you guys are continuing to look back longer and longer. It's just buy and hold, but it's not. And he wants to exclude the shorts, of course. But uh, we saw last year that uh, that what happened in February and March was not buy and hold. That some of the breakouts did occur, even the long-term breakouts occurred. We were able to switch our positions around, preserve capital, go short some of the commodities and get out of some of our stocks and do fairly well. The CTAs did fairly well. And uh, now we do have these positions on, let's say, that we've talked about that have broke out a year ago, some of the commodities. And uh, yeah, they're still good trades. And so I'm not going to apologize for not getting out of my soybeans or my copper. Maybe I could have gotten out a couple of times, gotten right back in. So that's not as much... Uh, buy and holding, but that would have not made as much money. And so I think that the long term in the back test works well and it's not correlated, it's not s- similar in critical periods to buying and holding. It is an, an effective strategy. It's not our goal to justify our existence by saying, hey, look over here, look how much I'm trading. No, it's to do the right thing. And if doing the right thing is to hold these positions, let's do it. And then we can switch on a dime after a nice drawdown, let's say, get short, and the shorts matter, and getting out of the longs at the right time matters. So I I love the long-term stuff. Yeah, and and I would just add to that and say that I think what people have to always remember is that what we do as managers, what we do in our research process is we're really guided by the evidence, right? I mean, if if the longer term look back periods, uh, you know, are better, 
you're not going to find a CTA saying, oh, I don't care about that. I'm going to go short term, right? I mean, we're just not going to do that. The evidence is really our guy. And certainly I can only speak for, for our firm, of course, and that is for us, it's actually just a, an automatic process. I mean, our parameters and lookbacks will adjust over time purely based on the data. It's not something we sit as a committee and decide, oh, let's do 25 days look back or let's do 175 data. It's the data, days, it's the data that determines that over time, but it's not something that changes that often. So I get also what you're saying, Antonio, that could we end up just look like buy and hold at the end of the day? I don't think there's any risk of that. But, you know, investment is a very long-term game and markets just in the times that, Chesapeake has been around or Don has been around, they've changed dramatically. And why would we not think that they're going to change again? They always change. And so that's really the adaptability that trend following offers and why it makes it such a strong element to have on your side in, in a portfolio context. Okay, Antonio, I think we hopefully have dealt with all of your questions. Now you can relax, Jerry. Now you sent actually a comment, and I don't know what this means. You just sent this as a comment. You said, Rob Carver, which of course will be on in a couple of weeks, trade bigger when your trade becomes a better risk-adjusted trade. So dive into that for me. What what are you unpacking here? Well, I like listening to Rob and Moritz and Mark, and uh, I like to dis I disagree with some of the things they say, and I agree with some of the things they say, and it would be great to be on with Rob. He and I are more yeah. different, I think, than... Uh, I'm more different than Rob than than everyone else, and I think I got this quote when I was listening to the podcast, you know, uh, with you. And uh, he said something like, "Trade bigger when the trade becomes a better risk-adjusted trade." So, at the risk of misquoting him and not doing my homework and going back and confirming this once again, maybe I'll just wait until uh, to get into it and not maybe not attribute this to Rob. I would just say that uh, I don't agree with this a statement like this that. Um, that we should, uh, I, I guess I don't agree that we know that it's a better risk-adjusted trade. There's, I don't believe in that concept. It's a, it's, a, it's a trade we should do when it meets our system criteria, and then I don't think it gets better or worse. And if it's not a trade, then it's not a trade. It, uh, something in my system that is embedded in a consolidation, it is not a trade. But then when it does break out to a new high, it does become a better risk-adjusted trade, but it becomes a trade. It's not better or worse. It's just a trade, and it's part of my system, and those systems have decent risk-adjusted trades. So that concept I'd like to discuss with Rob one of these days. Well, let me take you up on that. Because Rob is on in two weeks from today, so if uh, you could check your diary and let me know if you're around that Saturday, I think around the 7th of March or thereabouts, whatever it is, we will make it happen. We'll have the Jerry, Rob, <laughs> you know, um, what, what do you call it? Battle of the Quants. No, 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 Gentleman, no. Gentlemanly discussion. Of course, that's what I meant. <laughs> yes. So we'll definitely make it happen. Um, Jerry and I will will try and and, and coordinate calendars and, and, and let's see because it is quite interesting to have these conversations when we don't agree on things. Now, you also sent another statement. I'm not entirely sure if this was your own one or the other one, but it says, so taking small losses doesn't mean you should cut profits short. 
how can we not treat open trades differently from the take a small loss and let your profits run ideas? How does one let profits run by putting a tight rein on open profits, similarly to the way we handle losing trades? This is Trend Following 101, solving for sharp and being preoccupied with standard deviation, vol targeting demands, more parameters and rules, which harms robustness. Drawdowns are important to profits, but not as a risk metric. Was that related to some of the above or just something else you wanted to hammer through? <laughs> well, this is my, uh, probably I was drinking uh, red wine and listening to a podcast and I just started typing. And uh, I've said all of these things many times, even on this podcast, some of that. Uh, so I wanted to talk about, though, what I mean. I think I can be somewhat articulate and give Rob some uh, something to disagree with from my point of yeah. view, uh, which is that uh, drawdowns are important to profits, but they're not important as a risk metric. Yes, that's my own creation. And I've been wondering if I could explain that. I think I can. I think what I like to look at when it comes to risk-adjusted is what's my average winning trade and what's my average losing trade? So I'm going to risk 50 basis points per trade. What is my average win going to be? And so I'm sort of ignoring the open trade drawdowns. When the trade is over, let's, when all my trades are over in the back test, I don't even look at the open trades and I just total up, you know, what was my average win, what was my average loss, and I use those what I call trade stats to sort of uh, determine if I like this system or not. So we've already decided we're going, we like the system, we're going to trade it. It does well. It has a high average win. The losses are small; they're about forty percent. So our win loss ratio is nice. It's it's decent, and I'm going to ignore this drawdown. From a risk point of view, I'm only looking at that I'm going to risk 50 basis points per hand at this blackjack table. Then what am I going to make per hand? I may have been up a lot. Now I'm down a lot, but I'm ignoring that to some degree. But but of course, the drawdown as it relates to my profits is very important. It's embedded in this, uh, the way I'm analyzing uh, this back test. And I don't like losing all this money back. But I'm looking at my average win, and the average win is very good. It's amazingly good. So even when I do have this drawdown, and, and I only look at it from, you know, I had a 100 ATR profit, now I have a 50 ATR profit. I'm very sad about that because I lost 50 ATRs, and I like to make money. But following these rules historically has made it... Um, in my determination, this is the best way to make these profits in the most amount of profits. And I have to, as painful as it is, is sit back and give back on the profits, which I'm very unhappy about. But as a general rule, I don't think that the drawdown per se is, is a great risk metric for determining how to trade, which systems I'm going to trade. I have had massive drawdowns in this Bitcoin trade or in the lumber trade in numerous trades this year and last year and they're all at new highs now so i'm very happy about that and i might have some more bigger drawdowns coming but at the end of the day in order to achieve the profits that i want to achieve from this system i must let the let the systems do what they do without regard to how painful 
this give back of profits is. Okay. I think that's really interesting. And um, I'm sure we can have some fun with that when we make this, uh, Rob, you joined episode happen. But I want to I want to ask a little bit of a clarification question because I, I'm curious about it. When you look at, say, a system, or if you look at adding a market to, say, your model, my understanding is now that what's really important to you is the average win-loss ratio for that market or that system. I understand that. My question is just, how much, if anything, do you look at the equity curve at all? Because path dependency, meaning that you can have a cluster of, as you say, losing periods or trades, and that can create, obviously, big drawdowns, If at least if you whether it's open profit, closed profit, but if you look at an equity curve, it's going to show up as a drawdown. How much does that actually influence you today? And and the final question is, has that changed over time? Meaning in the early part of your career, did you pay more attention to the equity curve, but now you've realized for you, it's actually better just to look at kind of the raw trade stats. And as long as you're comfortable with those you know where you're going long term in terms the equity curve will continue up in the long term and it's not so important how it gets to that point can i put it like that yes exactly and it may not get to a point you like if you pay too much attention to that equity curve i do think that any any strat any thing you believe about trading in any, in every system regardless my my way or anyone else's way you, you must be flexible to realize that you could have some material system failure that would require you to pay attention to your equity curve, obviously, and to trade smaller. That was the original overriding, amazingly perfect risk control measure, which was trade smaller, cut back. When you have these drawdowns, you must trade smaller. And so now I trade a lot smaller than when I started trading. And I'm not trying to make 200%, but maybe 12%. So this cutback is usually not that necessary for me because I'm not trading very aggressive to begin with. There is an absolute level that, you know, if you're down 50% or 70%, it doesn't matter what your potential profit is. It's You're, you're really in a bad situation. So there is an absolute number we all have in our head and that our clients have that we have to respect. And so you would have to make these equity cutbacks and trade level cutbacks and the size that you trade is going to have a big, if you're risking 50 basis points or 150 basis points, this is going to have a big impact on your equity curve and your need to pay attention to your risk of ruin and losing your, all of your money and losing all of your clients. But I think another thing too that we've not talked about is that um, it's very important to manage your trade level and I think that maybe, in my opinion, some of the mishandling of trade level calculations creates some preoccupation with the equity curve and the cutback and the um, paying attention to drawdowns. And so, one of the things that I do is I don't change my trade level very often. I don't change, so I'll trade a constant trade level for over a year probably. And like, I'm not going to, incorporate these 
recent 2020 profits or this month's profits into trading my new trades larger. So I'm not putting myself in a situation where uh, that is that is going to play havoc with me just looking at the trades. So I'm, I'm, I think if you don't have more of a constant trade level where you're not incorporating big open trade profits into your new trades, then this makes a lot more sense. But if every day you're basing your new trades on your current wildly profitable open trades, and then you're truing up your trades, your positions monthly or annually, then I think this is a huge money management mistake. Now all bets are off. Yeah, you've got to scramble to do all kinds of things. Oh yeah, pay attention to the OTE, vol target, all kinds of issues where I just sit back and say, yep, I started with a million. I'm up 50% for the year. I'm going to keep my trade level at a million because this open trade equity is fluctuating so wildly with my long-term systems that don't pay attention to open trade equity that until I sort of cycle through my trades and I'll cycle through, okay, so after a year or so, I'm no longer up 50% on my $1 million. I'm up 20%. And I don't really have very many positions on. So now that's my new baseline for my trade level, 1.2. So I'm going to be very conservative with incorporating profits into my trade level. Hopefully, I didn't lose you on all of that. No, I think that that's, that is fascinating, actually, because I've never... I mean, I've, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, so I know that that's how you do it. But I've never come across anyone doing it like you. But I fully understand it. And I think it makes a lot of sense in many ways. The, my only f- a follow-up question would be, do you have a fast, or let me not a fast one, do you have a hard rule for when you do it? Or is it when you just feel, okay, right now, open PL is kind of, you know, not very significant. So this is a good time to do it. Unfortunately, that's been my rule. <clears throat> uh and it's evolved over time. I need to come up with a rule. Okay. I think that uh, it's, there's some benefit to being consistent in that and uh, sort of seeing what has worked in the past, even though the sample size for that would be pretty low. I think it's just a fundamental, responsible, conservative money management principle to not incorporate. I think the overall principle would be something like this. Don't incorporate open trade winners and open trade profit quickly but absolutely incorporate losses much quicker. So that's the cutback rule. When you're experiencing these losses and you are looking at these trade stats and you've had 10 losers in a row and you're really eating into your capital, it's not a million five, it's 900,000. You know, you've got a bunch of losses in a row here. Then incorporate those losses and maybe at a higher rate, if you're down 10%, maybe reduce your trading by 20%. And then on the other side, if you're up 20% or 50%, don't include that into your new trade level until you've sort of cycled through and it's a more safer environment to say, yeah, you know, I think uh, I am going to book a lot of these trades and the profit is going to be X. And now it's sort of worthwhile from a money management point of view to sort of say, okay, I do have a new capital baseline that was probably going to last me for six months or a couple of years. Who knows? And uh, final question is, was this something you were taught by Rich and, and, and Bill, or was this something you came up with after you left? The list of things I've come up with after I left is very, very short. So no, this was something, this was a philosophy that I learned. <laughs> right. And I, yeah, and it's, um, I know one of our questions talks about uh, me saying how 
incredibly intelligent and how wonderful our mentors were and how uh, they're you know just genius people t- teaching us these and this was one of the eternal truths that I think they taught us yeah cool all right let's move on to a couple of questions we have the first one just to break up the the turtle stuff we're going to have a non-turtle question here this is from Mohit and Mohit writes if you could ask Jerry in the future what kind of baseline risk per trade does he use it'll be a big help can you get the guests to give you something a little more concrete that improper leverage is what gets you into trouble? So I think what he's trying to assess is when we talk about, and and you don't have to use specific number what you use, but if you say I use 30 bips or 30, 0.3% risk, do you divide that over all your entry points so that the market in its in total can get to 30 basis points? Or do you have maybe five entries, depending on look-back periods, for the same market, and they each take 30 basis points? And maybe I think that's what he's trying to get to. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, each trade, you know, uh, risking 30 basis points, or that sounds like a, a good number to me. That sounds like something that I would do, 30 to 50 basis points per trade. I think it's a difficult question. I think uh, some of the money management ideas, turtle money management, it's out there in the public domain. But I just, it's its difficult to talk about or to explain. But it also assumes that, uh, my assumption is that you're going to have a moderate uh, stop loss. So your stop loss is not uh, close to the market per se. So if your stop loss is a half an ATR from your entry, and but I'm only risking 30 basis points. Well, you're just going to have like five losers in a row. So you've got to get a little further away to where it's not likely that you'll be stopped out of a trade a few hours after you put it on. That's part of the equation. How many ATRs am I risking? Mm. What's my max risk going to be? It's fed into some sort of equation that you use and you use it in your back test and you come up with your solution for yourself. But uh, certainly... The number of ATRs you risk is equally as important. And then maybe just as a follow-up to make sure we uh, we get the full um, question, and that is, if if you say okay, thirty bips, that seems reasonable, because you say per trade. So I'm thinking, okay, there might be more trades in the same market taking thirty bips. If that's the case, is there a limit for a market of how many? 30 bips trades it can do where you say okay when i get to one and a half percent that's it all oh i misspoke i okay. meant 30 bips per market. for soybeans yeah per yeah, market that's what i thought yeah, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry that's what i thought yeah, yeah. otherwise it can get a little bit uh, yeah. dicey oh yeah okay <laughs> last qu- <laughs> last question is from peter and this definitely is a, uh, a turtle question so it's a long one so i'll might have to break it up in a few smaller parts anyways I'm writing you as the uh, 124th episode of the Systematic Investor Series where you were together with Jerry had impressed me even more than usual. We appreciate that, Peter. During the conversation you have with Jerry, it's been a recurring topic how brilliant the ecosystem was that Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart had developed for the Turtles. Still, not many of the subsequent generations of traders proved to be disciplined enough to follow those or similar rules, making use of them, as well as benefiting from them. There is just one thing I'd like to ask Jerry in relation to this. The turtle adventure 
amongst others, one unique feature that I think might have helped the participants a lot overcome some of the behavioral hurdles like loss aversion and enable them to follow the rules. The feature was that the capital used in the experiment had been provided by Richard Dennis. I'm not saying that the turtle's skin and skin were not in the game, though perceivably to a lesser extent than when you trade solely at your own risk. So the question is whether he has ever considered to have another round of turtle fund with new guys who would be provided with capital but required to follow Jerry's rules. The idea is not original, but to some extent would be philanthropical. I truly believe that historically, most successful strategies are belonging to the same masterclass of meta strategy of rule following beside trend following. This holds for Warren Buffett's value investing and Taleb's and Spiegelnager's anti-fragile strategies. Just the potentials of all such are usually deteriorated by falling into psychological traps. Getting provided by a bit of initial capital, some traders may jump over the chasm set out by the cognitive emotional biases. What do you think about this? Please let me know. So what do you think about this, Jerry? I like, I like this is an interesting uh, cons- uh, idea to talk about. The, um, uh, I think uh, the turtle experience was, I've said it before, it was much enhanced by being there. So a set of rules are great. Coming up with your own rules is great. But not just having people to work with or people to uh, advise you, and be, but I think being there, and it, it, go, it went far beyond. I've come up with this bad analogy is, here is the manual of being a Marine. Now go be a Marine with this manual or go to boot camp with the Marines. So it's a whole lot different. And so I think we had a... Uh, we had money. We had uh, this pretend environment where we're getting positive feedback. Even when we lost money, we were using the the person providing the capital. We were using their rules. And so you get into the real world, none of that is around. You don't have this positive feedback all the time for just following the rules, regardless of your performance. You don't get capital from clients who believe in it more as much as you do. It's the opposite. They don't believe in it very much, and they're willing to run away as soon as you have some bad periods. They don't understand it as much, even though they act like they do. So I don't think that uh, skin of the game is a relevant idea because the vast majority of managers want to succeed so much. There's so many reasons that you want to succeed, that you'll do almost anything to succeed in this business. Money, pride, whatever, and the vast majority of people don't trade their own money. Not, the ones make, you know, the big hedge funds, they're, they're trading some of their own money, but they're also trading, you know, the whole goal is to get client money. So none of us really want to have our own skin in the game and, and, and have no clients at all. But I don't think it really impacts our ability or, or our performance very much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, do you think that there, and maybe it's not, but I mean, of course, if if it was another turtle project, it would have to be one of the turtles, I guess. But I mean, do you think in as a general experiment that it could work as well as it did for for Rich? Uh, or has the world changed 
too much that it would be hard to find a diverse group of people who would actually be willing to just apply other people's rules, so to speak, to begin with, at least. I don't think it's necessary. I think, you know, uh, so much about trading now, it's evolved into, you're just not going to hire people, sit them down, give them your rules and say, here's money and go trade. You're going to say, hey, I want to hire people who are very smart at, at coding or math and then I'll give you some basic ideas, but really I want you to come up with something different and new. And so try to f do some backtesting. And, uh, and this is going on all the time. So the turtle thing was once in a lifetime thing at that particular time. It's not really that relevant any longer. I think the one thing that I've said a million times that no one wants to deal with and no one cares about, and that is... This was two of the smartest people when it comes to trading in the world of all time, and there we sat. And so you can imagine, if that is true, everything else written about the turtles is so small in comparison. It's like if you knew somebody who sat at the set with Da Vinci, you would, you know, you would ask the appropriate questions. And what was this person like? How amazing was this? But no, we get this criticism and this skepticism about trend following. What we were taught doesn't work any longer. There's not this acknowledgement that, my gracious, these guys really sat with genius people who gave them these principles that would last throughout all time in their lifetime of trading. They were able to know how to evolve in the right way and adjust due to markets changing and things changing. But this is not the, the focus, and that's what the focus needs to be on, was this amazing experience with these two people that cannot be duplicated because I'm not close to being like that, and I have not met anyone or read of anyone, no matter how much AUM they have, who reminds me of Rich and Bill. So let me also, and, and you can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong here, you mentioned this thing again that if someone did it today, what they might like is to find a group of people who could actually go out and then do a lot of backtesting and get, and and actually they would almost do it to get something in return, new ideas, whatever. But actually what Rich and Bill did was the opposite. They just wanted to see if they could teach a diverse group of people to do this and become successful. They kind of did it for the benefit of the of 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 other people, not so much what can I? I mean, of course they made money from from it because it worked, but the motivation was not for you, for you, Jerry, to go and find new ideas for Rich to trade. Well, they were able to do it. They, I think, didn't take twenty random people, so they tilted the odds in their favor that they would have people who would be suited to learn. But as I said earlier, they definitely wanted us to add. A creative, some creativity to the process. I don't think that that worked. I don't think we felt incentivized to step out or the group of people that they hired. We were not that great at coming up with new ideas for them to do their research on. So that's our fault and our bad. And so, but I definitely think that was part of the reason that they wanted to do it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. But I don't see people out there saying, hey, Jerry, I have read about the turtles. And this is amazing what you guys have done. And I'm going to make it my goal to learn more. 
about the original stuff that you guys were taught, the philosophy. I've heard bits and pieces on these podcasts. And then I'm going to take that, exactly these principles and philosophies, and I'm going to try to merge this with my ability to write code and do analysis. I don't want to steer too far away from these basic principles. No, it's just like you said a few minutes ago. Oh, yeah, trade level. That's interesting. I've never heard, I don't know of anyone who does that. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. You know, and so with me, I would say to myself, and I'm not Richard Dennis, but if I, I would have this attitude, I would say, oh, I heard Richard Dennis does something like this. Let me just tell you, that is good enough for me. I am going to think about this and analyze this concept or idea that someone like him has had, and it's going to preoccupy all my time. Not, well, that's not how I do it. I don't agree with that. Trend following doesn't work anymore. That's, I think that's dumb. It's, I'm not even saying it's frustrating to me. It's laughable that um, what I hear for 30-some years out, after I left the Turtles doesn't come close to matching up with what I learned over those four years. Absolutely. And I will just encourage everyone listening. And this is maybe a favor that I'm going to ask you guys. And that is, one, go back in the archive of the podcast or go to YouTube on the Top Traders Unplugged channel and find the interview that Jerry and I did with Richard Dennis. He has not done many interviews, I think is fair to say, over the decades, but he did one with us a few years back. There's so many value in those two episodes we did. And also, do me a favor, take those two episodes and share that with three of your friends. If you would do that, we would be ever so grateful because these are gems that you just don't find anywhere else. On that lesson of Turtle Trading 101, let's bring you up to date on performance because it is still, as we approach the last week of February, still a good month for CTAs and trend followers. The Beta 50 index is up almost 4% for the month. It's almost up 3% for the year. SockGen CTA index up four and a quarter thereabouts, up 3% for the year. SockGen trend index up 5% for the month, up four and a quarter for the year. The SockGen short-term traders index also up 2.1% for the month, up half a percent for the year. And to put it in perspective, the SockGen multi-alternative risk premium index, such a long title, up 38 basis points, up one and a quarter for the year. MSCI is up uh, 5.4 in February, up 4.3 in uh, year to date. And as we've talked about early on, world government bonds are having a difficult month. They're down one and a half percent so far. Now, Jerry, we sometimes, if we remember it, we sometimes finish up by sharing maybe a resource or a podcast or something that we've listened to. Um, I'll give you a few seconds to think about your suggestion. But mine this week was not a conversation about trading or anything like that. But it was a two-part interview done by Lewis Howes with a Dr. Andrew Hopperman about positive thinking and how to control your mind. It was fascinating, actually, and I still have to finish the, the second part. But very interesting. Of course, we know how much mindset and positive thinking when you go through one of these relentless drawdowns from time to time, how important that is in our business. So this was just something completely different to what I would normally listen to, but I found it interesting. Anything that came up your streak this week in terms of content? Well, I just, uh, 
listened to a webinar, watched a webinar that talked about portfolio and 60-40 and what's next. And it was very, I, I like this group and I think they're very smart people. But one of the conclusions that they came to is that because we're only going to answer this question via buy and hold, that now maybe bonds are not a good idea, but Bitcoin is a good idea. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. You Now that Bitcoin has this great historical return, after a few years of being in existence, it now can fit into your portfolio. And I was just shaking my head at what a sad situation it is to look at the markets in that particular way. It just leads me back to the same conclusion that uh, you've got to try and follow everything. It's the only safe way to do things and putting things in and out of your portfolio because of all of a sudden it's it's got a really nice positive historical buy and hold return seems less than the smartest thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, before we wrap up, let me just say that I know that time is a great unrenewable resource and that you lend us an hour or two each week to keep up to date with the podcast, to learn, to fail and to get up with us to walk together on this journey of figuring out how to best trade and invest in an uncertain and sometimes crazy world. And for that, we are always incredibly grateful. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you did, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. I've got some great ones coming in this week. So I appreciate those indeed, but we can always use more. Next week, I'm joined by Mark. And uh, make sure you keep your questions coming to us by sending them to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we will do our best to answer them next weekend. And of course, you can always follow us on various social media platforms. Last thing to say from Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, be well and stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.